Hey, it's in a book. Welcome back. I'm Lawrence Rouse. I am in Raleigh, North Carolina, and you are about to listen to that most uncomfortable of things, an argument between a husband and wife. Um, you can pipe in at any minute, dear wife. <laughs> <laughs> My wife, Kristen, is sitting right next to me uh, here in the studio, and we are going to talk a bit about our selection for reading uh, this episode. That being, Kristen, a million little pieces by James Frey or James Fry. Uh-huh. Which is, I think it's Fry. What, Lawrence says Frey. Let's Frey, go with Fry. Fry. Let, potato, patata, French fry, <laughs> whatever his name is. That, that's rude. I, I really don't mean that uh, in that way. I have plenty of other reasons with which to disagree with Mr. Frey or Fry, so uh, we'll, we'll stick uh, to those. No no ad hominem attacks here. Um, so, uh, the backstory on, on this whole thing is that uh, I asked Kristen to read a book for uh, this episode, and I, I was pretty, uh, pretty loose in the guidelines I gave her with regard to choosing a book and of course she chose the one book about which we will never ever agree for good reason for good reason yeah right because he did like, no a i mean scoundrel as to thing. Why, I, I mean as to why i chose that book oh, let's hear it let's hear it well i read a lot of memoirs it's really basically all i've been reading for the past year or so yeah true so i was thought okay i should read a memoir and then i thought well why not read the most controversial memoir as of late and one that we argue about well it, it's not exactly late i mean the controversy is old it's dead now we're, we're sort of uh probably beating a dead horse here um hopefully most people have made their minds up about this thing and and uh, have therefore sided on the side of right uh that would be my side and mm-hmm. uh and the whole thing is settled but uh I guess we're going to hash it out here one more time because I pretty much told Kristen that I pretty much had nothing good to say uh, about this book, which I will grant you is uh, not read (laughs) is a is a somewhat, uh, uh, you know, tenuous position to uh, to attack from being as Kristen just pointed out. I haven't read the book. You're awfully quiet over there to say you're going to defend this book. Um, well, okay. Well, let's just say what happened. He he wrote this book. It was an Oprah book club. It made him famous. He made a million dollars, probably. And it's a memoir. It is not a but, memoir. It is not a memoir. It's fiction. No, I'm saying he promoted it as a memoir. But I believe the cover says a million little pieces. A memoir. Yeah, where is it? Um, it's right there. Okay, I'm going to pull it out. And then come to find out, the smoking gun... Um, outed him for much of it not being true right okay and in my opinion what's a little more despicable about this whole thing is that i mean we have like a in america you know like this 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 drug war going we have this uh you know the, the whole controversy about drugs and addiction that we've had going for generations now and and it's a pretty serious subject i mean it you know it is uh it's something that tears families apart, that tears people apart, and outside of the the sort of contract that between the reader and and the author, I mean, both 
both individuals sort of sort of open themselves uh, to the process of of, uh, of of sharing that that goes on when when uh, a book is is disseminated one one from the other the, from the author to the reader. I mean, both both individuals are fairly vulnerable in my estimation of what takes place in in the reading of a book, and and so I feel like it's it's sort of a sacred contract, and I feel like to to violate that willingly, knowingly is is a huge, huge deal. And Kristen disagrees with me. To no, some it's not that I disagree. I stand by the book as still a great, great book. And something I don't agree with. Which you haven't even read it, so how I would tried. you know? I started. Maybe the first few pages. But I had read the book and then it was over a year before he was outed. And so I was still like it's a great book. I loved it. I would read it again. I would recommend it. For me, I didn't take it personal. Like, oh, he lied to me. And I had some thoughts about, you know, memoirs, which are often based loosely on someone's life. It wasn't an autobiography. But here's the thing. We're, we're both wrong in some regards because while you haven't read the book, so you can't agree with me that, yes, hey, it's still a great book, I haven't really researched everything that he's lied about in it. And there are some pretty startling Which you seem to know lies. more about that right. than I do. Because we'll, we'll I'm kind of like, well, some of it's not true. Okay, let's move on. I've read his other two books after that, and I really like them Which too. were, I believe, sold as fiction. Yes. And now, one of the things I'd like to point out to you is that he originally shopped this as fiction, and there wasn't much interest. and And so he therefore... You know, yeah, that's wrong. I agree, that's memoir. wrong. But and I think it's, it's a great book. It's hugely wrong. It's huge. I mean, like, that's a big, big deal. It is a big, big deal. But okay. this whole time, though, my whole point has been he's a great writer. It's a great book. Mm, uh, something about which, having read, you know, the first few pages, I, I would beg to differ. Well, his last book, which I think was Bright, Shiny Morning, was excellent. I couldn't put it down. Okay, well, listen... This is what it says on the back of the book. At the age of 23, James Frey, maybe it's James Fry, woke up on a plane to find his four front teeth knocked out, his nose broken, and a hole through his cheek. He had no idea where the plane was headed, nor any recollection of the past two weeks. An alcoholic for ten years and a crack addict for three, he checked into a treatment facility shortly after landing. There he was told he could either stop using or die before he reached age 24. This is Frey's acclaimed account of his six weeks in rehab. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, doesn't that say it all? I mean, <laughs> it, outside of the fact that many, many portions of his acclaimed account never happened. It, I mean, isn't that like such a serious, serious offense against people who are have suffered that, from drug addictions and well, people yes, who still maybe. suffer from them who, who, you know, I, I just feel like it's an affront. Well, yeah, but you spoke earlier that, you know, there's like this silent contract between an author and a writer and each are, I mean, an author and a reader and each are vulnerable. But like, I never was offended. I was like, oh, wow. It's, it's much a big of this lie. isn't true. Oh, it's still a, a great book. I mean, it didn't affect me personally. Maybe that says something about me. I don't know. Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I I have, 
you know, plenty of respect for, for James Frey or, or James Fry as an Arthur. I, it, it really bothers me that we don't know how to say his name. I'm, I just want to go on the record. Yeah, um, you should be ashamed. Yeah, that, that's... <laughs> Pretty sure it's Fry. You should be ashamed. You picked the book and, and you read it. And True. you will hear Kristen read it at the end of the podcast. But, I mean, the, the tremendous amount of work that goes into sitting down in front of a keyboard or a notepad or, or a computer, whatever, whatever it is, and, and producing a book of, uh, 420-some-odd pages. I mean, it, that's an incredible feat, especially one that's readable and, and one that you insist mm-hmm. is, is very, very readable and very, very good and very worth reading. So I have utmost respect for him as an Arthur. I, however, feel that the, the violation of the reader's trust that goes into having shopped this as a memoir after having shopped it as fiction unsuccessfully and, and then having sold it as a memoir and having joined in this whole charade it is, I, I don't think I'll ever read it. I, I don't, I can't get past that. So maybe, well, maybe you're right in, in that when I read it, maybe part of what made it so good was that, I was thinking, wow, this is insane. I can't believe this wow, guy this went really through this. really happened, yeah. And, and for didn't. you to pick it up now, knowing much of it isn't true, it's not going to be as thrilling. Um, but perhaps if you never knew that it was a lie and it, w- it was put out there as fiction. Then you, it might not be as good a book. Maybe. I don't know, because his other two books were really, really good. Hmm. Well, maybe one day I'll read one of them. Maybe this is what you should do. You should read Bright Shining Morning, which is obvious fiction, and and just see if you like it. Well, according to everyone who did the fact checks on A Million Little Pieces, it's pretty obvious fiction, too, just for the record. Um, so. Okay, well, outside of this whole he's a liar thing, he is a great writer, and I, I like his technique. He has very short sentences. And he um, breaks the page with each sentence. The dialogue, there's no quotations. It's all devices, you know, that are, are fairly common. And some some editors and readers were really turned off by his by his gimmicks. Well, other people really loved it. Right, right. No accounting for taste. Right. Well. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I, I guess that's enough of that. I mean, and and certainly, I'm I'm. Uh, you know, uh, well, Oprah made him pay the price. So yeah, apparently Shout she out to Oprah. she really tore into him. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, I'm, I'm sorry that anyone had to experience the wrath of uh, of Oprah Winfrey. Apparently, it, it was pretty, <laughs> it was pretty devastating. Uh, so James Frey or, or James Fry, um, I, I know you've repented and and you're you know apparently a very successful Arthur now. And uh, you know, m- maybe maybe one day I'll read. Uh, you know. Your other two books, and not not that. He really well, the cares. other reason you don't I mean, like him is because of his fiction factory. Thing. Right. Oh, let's not even get into that. Okay. <laughs> the fiction factory. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, all right, uh, and it's not that I don't like him. I mean, I've never met him, and obviously, you know, you've he, never read him, never uh, met him. <laughs> he he's got better things to do than than worry about how I feel about him, and and I'm perfectly okay with that. I just I just have a fundamental objection to to what he did with that with that whole debacle um you know i've known addicts i i've i've known people whose lives have, have just been so horrendously affected by 
the way that we handle addiction and, and the supply and demand of drugs in this country. And I, I think it's just too serious a thing about which to play this, this game that he played. Um, I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you, you know. that. So at any rate, um, all that said, Kristen has read 40, 38 minutes mm-hmm. of A Million Little Pieces. And uh, I, I love listening to her read, and hopefully you will too. Uh, she's a lot less argumentative uh, now that a microphone is in her face. We have had <laughs> more knockdown, drag-out fights about this argument. I mean, last night, her mother, who is uh, spending a little time with us, felt compelled to intervene because she thought our marriage was falling to a million little pieces right in front mm-hmm. of her as we argued over this book. So uh, uh, she's she's pretty reticent uh, right now when, when the... When the, when the how's it? What when the metal hits the what? I don't know. I don't know. Rubber hits the road. I, I, insert stupid saying. Uh, I can't think of one right now. So there it is. Uh, it's in a book. Thank you very very much for coming back uh, this fortnight to listen to a million little pieces, and uh, we have a great interview in store with a colleague of mine, former colleague of mine. He since left the uh, wonderful little game that he and I play at work, uh, uh, tutoring uh, uh, new Green Beret medics uh, to become a full-time student. His name is Dan Lorden, and uh, it was was very, very interesting and and very, very good to talk to him about his books and uh, the way he reads them. And uh, that will follow right uh, after current events. So thanks again for coming back. We'll see you after the break. Bye-bye. Bye. (laughs) so current events for the fortnight of june 10th 2013 happy birthday tommy rouse uh that's my father uh very current event as far as i'm concerned uh it's uh it's it's great being your son and uh I, I uh, have much to thank you for, and uh, and so I do. Uh, happy birthday. So, uh, on with the business of other current events. Uh, I am reading this fortnight, just finished, William Gaddis's Agape Agape. I believe, after a little research, that... Actually, I said it wrong. Agape Agape. Uh, believe that's the the correct pronunciation i liked it because i'm really in love with william gaddis from the recognitions um there were parts of it that were a little disturbing uh a little a little alarming in that uh i'm ever probably ultra sensitive even uh to um any any perceived, probably perceived, hopefully uh, William was uh, way too smart a guy for for the sort of, um, I hesitate to use the word racism. It's such a powerful and strange word and, and uh, uh, one that is very evocative. Uh, a good friend of mine came up with the term, uh, or I'm not sure he came up with it, but he, uh, he often used it, uh, racialism. Um, at any rate, uh, there's there's one little section of uh, uh, agape 
agape. That's a little disturbing along those lines. But having read so much more of、uh, William Gaddis in the Recognitions, which was just brilliant,、uh, I'm going to hold. That what I read was probably an exercise in、uh, in irony and、um, some sort of literary device.、Uh, I, w- I would read it to you, but、uh, we we have the time already earmarked for other things, and I want to talk about another couple of books. But Agape Agape is sort of the swan song of, of、uh, William Gaddis's career, I guess.、Um, It's written. I think it was originally published、uh, as a radio play or something like that. But it is the the dying wishes,、uh, sort of, of this Arthur on the player piano of all things, and how it has come to affect and interrupt culture through through. Its evolution into the computer and and just various other electronic uh, uh, devices that William Gaddis felt I think were disrupting American society and and certainly disrupting arts and and、uh, the artist. So it's definitely worth reading if you liked any of William Gaddis's other work. But it's very very dense stylistically. It's it's very difficult with which to contend. Overall, though, I'm very glad I read it, and I will say that it comes with a fairly long afterward.、Um, if, if you're not into books that require you to read an essay to understand them at the end, then, then certainly you can skip it. But I'm, I'm a big fan of William Gaddis, and so I definitely recommend *Agape Agape* along those lines. So the other books that I am going to be attacking over the next fortnight. I'm still working on Percy Lubbock's *The Craft of Fiction*.、Uh, I'm, I'm just going to be completely honest. I keep it in my restroom, and and I read it <laughs> occasionally as I go in there. So、uh, I'll probably finish it sometime in August,、um, which is to say nothing of, of how great a book it is. I'm, I'm going to read to you a short little selection from it about the novel. And the book as as an object, and as and and the impossibility of of grasping it as an object. It's it's a wonderful little、uh, little blurb on criticism. That said, having finished William Gaddis's Agape Agape, I am now turning my attention to Union Atlantic by Adam Hazlitt. It was written in 2010.、Uh, Adam Hazlitt is pretty accomplished.、Uh, if you look at his、uh, curriculum vitae. Um, you know, Swarthmore College, Yale, all that sort of thing. He, he may even be a, a lawyer in addition to being, being a writer.、Um, let's go ahead and pull up his page here on Wikipedia and see.、Uh, let's see. Adam Hazlitt, born December twenty fourth, nineteen seventy, is an American fiction writer. He was born in Port Chester, New York, and grew up in Oxfordshire, England, and Wellesley, Massachusetts. He is a graduate of Smart Swarthmore College,、uh, a place、uh, I find pleasing, pleasant in that one of my favorite authors, Norman Rush, author of Mating and、uh, Mortals,、uh, 
uh, graduated from Swarthmore College. But continuing, uh, he also went to the University of Iowa, Masters of Fine Arts, 1999, and Yale Law School, JD 2003. So he is a lawyer as well. He has been a visiting professor at the Iowa Writers Workshop and Columbia University. Fall 2011, he enjoyed half a year of free study work at the American Academy in Berlin. He currently lives in New York City, New York. So, um, I'm holding the book right now. Uh, the first great novel of the new century. It's big and ambitious, like novels used to be. It's about us. Now. All of us. That's from Esquire. Adam Hazlitt's page-turner of a debut novel ranges brilliantly from the Strait of Hormuz, maybe it's Hormuz, to the outskirts of Boston, to the belly of the financial beast, New York's Federal Reserve. It explains to me, with humor and style and generosity, how we became America in the year 2010. A must-read. And that's from Gary Steingart. Uh, Steingart. Uh, S-H-T-E-Y-N-G-A-R-T Gart. Yeah. Um, I, I own a couple of his books. Haven't, haven't jumped in yet, but, uh, his name is, is quite the name to pronounce. So, lastly, Adam Hazlitt has the rarest of talents. The ability to combine a powerful intelligence with storytelling that is both elegant and suspenseful. And to break your heart in the process. Union Atlantic is a masterful portrait of our age. And that's from Malcolm Gladwell. So, uh, I'm pretty excited about uh, tearing into Union Atlantic. Hopefully it will be a very, very good read and a very quick one. And I can head on to other things. Uh, So, I'll let you know how it turns out. Now, lastly, I'm going to read to you a little bit uh, after having revealed where I read it. I believe that I revealed that. Um... Of Percy Lubbock's The Craft of Fiction, I really love the the opening where he sort of describes the the beautiful impossibility of, of ever truly grasping a book. So here we go. To grasp the shadowy and phantasmal form of a book, to hold it fast, to turn it over and survey it at leisure, that is the effort of a critic of books and it is perpetually defeated. Nothing, no power, will keep a book steady and motionless before us, so that we may have time to examine its shape and design. As quickly as we read, it melts and shifts in the memory. Even at the moment when the last page is turned, a great part of the book, its finer detail, is already vague and doubtful. A little later, after a few days or months, how much is really left of it? A cluster of impressions, some clear points emerging from a mist of uncertainty. This is all we can hope to possess, generally speaking, in the name of a book. The experience of reading it has left something behind, and these relics we call by the book's name but how can they be considered to give us the material for judging and appraising the book? Nobody would venture to criticize a building, a statue, a picture, with nothing before him but the memory of a single glimpse caught in passing. Yet the critic of literature, on the whole, 
has to found his opinion upon little more. Sometimes it is possible to return to the book and renew the impression. To a few books we may come back again and again, till they do in the end become familiar sights. But of the hundreds and hundreds of books that a critic would wish to range in his memory, in order to scrutinize and compare them reflectively, how many can he expect to bring into a state of reasonable stability? Few indeed at the best. As for the others, he must be content with the shapeless, incoherent visions that respond when the recollection of them is invoked. Beautiful, no? So uh, that's from Percy Lubbock's The Craft of Fiction. Um, hopefully I'll, I'll get some time to, to really dive into that in earnest. Maybe uh, Union Atlantic will be as good as it, as it seems to be after a few pages, and I'll, I'll really tear through it. But one way or the other, that uh, speaks to current events for the fortnight of June 9th, 2013. So, after the break, we will interview Dan Lorden, and after that, Kristen Holmes Rouse, my beautiful bride, will read from a million little pieces of <clears throat> bullshit. So, uh, see you after the break. So, our interview today. I am very happy to welcome to uh, my home and uh, studio home office uh, my colleague, uh, former colleague, Dan Lorden. Uh, I'm going to, rather than just bore you uh, listening to me uh, tell you about him, I'm going to let him tell us uh, a little bit about himself, and then we'll get right into the interview. So, Dan, please. Uh, my name is Dan Lorden. I worked with Larry. Uh, we, uh, Me and my wife live in Durham. Uh, I just recently... Uh, quit my job with Larry to use awesome. the GI Bill to uh, go back to school full-time. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, like I said, we live in Durham, so we don't really fit the Raleigh Reader's criteria, but <laughs> I think it'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody is uh, as much listening these days other than friends and family, so <laughs> you, you won't be stoned in the streets for that yeah. when you're walking around Raleigh. It's good. All right, well, um, uh, Dan uh, is uh, a former Green Beret. I, I was hoping he would say so himself, uh, <laughs> a, a Green Beret medic. So he uh, he pretty much uh, bleeds and sweat awesome. Uh, he he I, I knew he wasn't going to say that himself, um, but I, I'm going to say it. Uh, and and now that that's said, we'll we'll get right into the interview. So you ready? All right. Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Okay. So I'll let you look over these questions a little bit, uh, but but hopefully. Uh, I didn't give you too much preparation. I forgot all of them. So. Good, good, yeah, because it was like five minutes. So, um, so, okay, so here we go. The first question is this. It's a busy world these days. How do you find the time to read? Uh, well, um, I, I normally read every night before I go to bed, or we try to. Uh, mm -hmm. Me and my wife both will we'll sit in bed and read a little bit before we go to bed. Um, I had a lot of free time because I was you know, in Fayetteville working, and so I could read at lunch and uh, at night. You know, right? Because I'm not. When I was working in Fayetteville, I was staying in Fayetteville a lot, so yeah, yeah. I could read at night when I had a couple hours. Yeah, and I often saw you reading at lunch uh, on on your iPhone, and yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about that here in a minute. Yeah, I like to I like to sit at work and read on my iPhone. Yeah, sweet, sweet. Um, so, how do you decide what to read? Um, a lot of it is word of mouth. Um, I like to. 
uh, hear what other people are reading. Like I, I started reading Invisible Man after you know listening to your podcast and hearing Woo! about it from you. <laughs> and you've been you've been opening my eyes to some different books to read for sure. Um, and then Nick has a lot of books that he's he's read. He's one of our coworkers as well. Right. And uh, so I've been telling him about some, and he's been telling me, and I've been picking them up. Most I don't really look at any lists online or uh, right or the top one hundred on. I get I, I do iBooks, so I don't really. I don't really read a lot of those. They tend to be not my thing. Right, right, yeah. There are some great lists out there. Um, I've seen uh, a couple of them, and I've lost them over a year over the years. But like uh, sometimes, like famous people, right. like on their personal websites, they they make a list of, of what they're reading. Sometimes that's is pretty interesting. And there was this one guy one time. Uh, he was uh, he had quit his job and he became a day trader. And so he he ran this this website back before you know like having personal websites was, was even like popular. This was probably like uh, early two thousands. And he tracked like the money that he was making from day trading and the books that he was reading. It, it was wow. like this really minimal, cool looking site or whatever. It does sound neat. Yeah, I lost the link and, and I can't find it. He's probably like a billionaire now. You yeah, know, reading in the Cayman Islands. Or so. he's living on the streets. Yeah, like yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Either way. Yeah. <laughs> So, but but the economy is coming back slowly but surely. So, yeah. so hopefully, uh, hopefully, if you're out there, guy, you you uh, <laughs> you made it okay through that. Um, so, all right. So, uh, the next question is, uh, I want you to talk a little bit about books as objects. Uh, how many do you have? Do you want more? Um, do you prefer paper or digital? Um, and and uh, we already talked about this a little. So, I'm, I'm interested to get your perspective. What you got? Well, um, I used to buy books, uh, you know, Barnes & Noble, a pretty mainstream way to buy books, but uh, now um, I'm pretty much only reading digitally or borrowing Mm. books from other people, not really going out and purchasing them. Um, I I read on my iPhone and my wife, Beth, reads on her Kindle uh, most of the time. So, you know, mostly digital. Right, you know, right. We just, we don't have enough space to acquire a lot of them. Right. If we were to buy books like you have, like, it would take up a whole room of our house. We live in a pretty small house, so. Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate, but we don't have, you know, mostly digital. I'd yeah. Say. Well, I, I have to say, like, when I, Kristen and I used to live in, in a, a small apartment uh, over, um, you know, in, a, in another part of Raleigh, and we like ran into that issue then like we right. we pretty much had books all over the place like tripping over them and everything mm-hmm. and and we're just i guess because we're older you right. know or, or i don't know like we we just can't give up on the paper thing yet. yeah um, yeah do you think one day you'll you'll want to get into yeah i a think bunch of books i think my wife has already pretty much gone straight to the digital full time yeah. but i think i'll come <laughs> back to it i'm not very tech savvy you know like this is the you know the iphone is pretty much as advanced as i get and even that i barely know how to use it compared to my wife right so i'm, I'm pretty far behind on all the, the apps and you know things like that so I think I'm just gonna stick with what I already know I think she's the one that's gonna be more advanced and you right know, as different uh, media styles come out I think she's gonna be the one who advances it a little more than me yeah I probably yeah. St- stick with a lot of the uh, paperbacks or whatever I get from other people yeah like that. yeah the, the concern that uh, that Kristen my wife expressed was that she she worried that you know, as the as the technology advances, we might not be able to preserve as well the, right. the digital books we've already purchased. Well, every time I get a new iPhone, I lose the books that were previously on it. Right. You know, so um, I, there's probably some way to transfer them, but I never have 
have uh, really synced it because I don't know anything about technology. Yeah, dude, you're <laughs> so, crazy, man. Those things can get expensive. You <laughs> let all that well, go. Well, I mean, I read them, and then you know, I'm not going to hand my phone off to somebody, and you can't share them. And that's another issue with doing it digitally is you can't share what you have. And I think that you know that's something that you know, books are good for. You can share them with other people, and right. you know, I can't do that now. Me and my wife can't really read the same book if I'm reading it on my phone. She has to buy it separately on you know, Kindle, right. which is probably good for. You know the authors; they get you know twice the money, but yeah, it makes publishers. it difficult. Yeah, the publishers, yeah, not the authors. <laughs> yeah, true. getting pimped. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, check it out. Um, have, have you ever seen this this website called Bookshelf Porn? No, do you? You and Beth have to check it out. If you if you just like the way books look, it is like this just bookshelves. Um, you know, like in, in like really cool places or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's you it's, should put uh, your bookshelf in there. Yeah. Well, they're not cool enough. Wait until you see the website. <laughs> like this this thing is awesome. So I'll show it to you when we're done here. Um, so and I, I guess you kind of already you prefer paper, but you're a digital guy right now. Or I yeah. mean, like, what well, do just you out of convenience. Uh, right. It's it's hard to lug around the books right, right. now. But uh, now I'm home. You know, and I'm going to school and having to buy those books. And chances are, I'm not going to send. You know, I'm not going to sell them back unless my wife makes me. But uh, <laughs> I'll probably keep those, and that that will probably start me back into going to you know reading and buying books and you know or yeah, real books, not digital books. So. Right, right, sweet. Well, keep me posted on how it turns out. I will. I would definitely will. <laughs> So now this next question, I talked about it in uh, in my last podcast because I, I ended up interviewing myself uh, for for lack of anyone else to interview or or you know just time right. issues. Um, it it really gave me a lot of difficulty, and when I wrote the question, I didn't realize it was such a pain in the ass of a question. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to throw it out there. What's your favorite book of all time, and why? That that is a hard question to answer because you know. Going back from like being a little kid and reading like Green Eggs and Ham, you know that could be somebody's favorite book, or you know <laughs> something way more advanced than that. You know, so I, I'd say I, I have two or three uh, absolute favorite books. Right. And uh, between the two, I, I really like Starship Troopers yeah, by Robert Heinlein, and uh, you know it's I, it, I think it speaks a lot to just the culture that I pretty much has been raised in since I was 18 now, mm -hmm. you know, till yesterday, right? you know, that, that military culture. And then Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer uh, really had a profound effect on me. I, it's, a, it's a great book. Yeah, We've really talked about it. I haven't read it. I think uh, there's a copy of it floating around our shelves here somewhere. Yeah. And, and I'm going to get it out and read it at, at your, uh, at, at your yeah. approval. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a book. really good book. And that, that's one of those that I bought, you know, got a... Got a, a hardcover edition of, and I lent it to another dude in group, and uh, never got it back. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one of those ones where I, I spent a good deal of money on it because it's like a you know, sixty dollar book, right? And then you know, gone, huh? gone, yeah. So yeah. somebody borrowed it. He probably let somebody else borrow it, and right. who knows where it's at now. So if if it's that good though, it's, it's like a a good karmic. Uh, Seed yeah, that exactly. Planted, you yeah, know? yeah. So. I don't. I don't really feel bad about it because hopefully other people are reading it, and uh, you know, it's 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 a pretty popular book. It's on the West Point reading list, uh, right? You know, for their for their cadets, and it's it's a good book about being a leader, uh, being a follower, and uh, things like that. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Sweet, sweet. Well, I'm definitely going to read it soon. Uh, so so that'll be, uh, I'll be I'll be talking about it here sooner or later. Um, so um, the last question, uh, if you're, oh well, I think you said you had three. I think that, so. You told me two of them. Uh, what's the third? Oh, um, <laughs> green eggs and ham. 
<laughs> yeah, pretty much. I, 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 I would say a, a assorted collection of children's books. You right. know, uh, Polar Express, actually. Really? So, uh, yeah, the Polar Express. Um, I, I had a copy of it when I was a little kid. Roald Dahl, it, is that? Is that... Um, yeah, I can't, I cannot think of the, the author. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I had that. Um, every year we used to pull it out and read it, and I had, it came with little bells, you know, like the... Or like the bells in the in the book, and uh, right. it's really well illustrated, and it's I think it's the best illustrated book that I've you know ever had, yeah, um, or seen. So you know I, I really I really love Polar Express, and they made it into a silly movie with Tom Hanks, so, right, you know, so. right. Yeah. Well, Tom Hanks usually chooses well. Um, <laughs> so, um, have you ever seen the the invention of Hugo Cabret? No, I haven't. I don't know who wrote that. We we have it upstairs. Um, it's supposed to be really good, and, and they made a, a silly movie of it too. And and I say that maybe it's a great movie. I haven't seen it. Um, I'll show that to you. It's got some pretty pretty awesome illustrations. That's you awesome. might want to check it out based on, yeah. you know, liking the Polar Express so much. Um, so, all right, last question. Um, what are you reading right now? Uh, right now, I'm actually uh, I'm reading a Tom Clancy book, uh, Red Storm Rising. It's mm-hmm. uh, you know, military adventure book, I guess you could say, or, you know, it's typical Tom Clancy books, all you really say. <laughs> well, not, not the most uh, literary, it's not a literary classic or anything, but it's it's enjoyable to uh, right. to zone out and read that at night, not think about work or, you know, school coming up or anything. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever written anything, Dan, but I, I write a little bit too. Uh, hopefully one day I'll be able to write a lot more, but... When I look at like the body of Tom Clancy's work, you know, I have nothing but respect for him because it's so hard to sit in front of your your typewriter, your computer, whatever, and just you know, and just punch the keys and, and, right. and come up with something that people love to read. Well, he comes up with a love movie. to read. Him. Yeah, it, it reads like a movie, like looks, you know, like right. so. I, it, and it so it's easy to get into it, and you know, it, it's it's just it's it's a really easy yeah. breeze through read. So right, nice. yeah, nothing but respect for Tom Clancy. So. Um, so, uh, all right, man. Well, uh, you, you got anything else you want to tell us? You, uh, my, my last interview, uh, my good buddy uh, Pete Logan read a poem. Do you, you got anything you want to read? Or, or, uh, <laughs> no, man. No, no, no. Let's do that. No. <laughs> maybe, maybe in a few, more, a few more years after I take some college classes, maybe I'll be writing some poems or something. <laughs> sweet, <laughs> sweet. Okay, man. Well, um, I guess that'll take care of it. Uh, I, I really want to thank you for, uh, for dropping by today and, uh, and yeah, interviewing. Yeah, we appreciate you having us over and uh, opening up your home. It's, it's, you know, it's a beautiful house. And Thanks. We love Thanks. coming over here. Sweet. Well, we'll have to do dinner sometime soon. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> all right. So, all right. Well, I guess that's it. And uh, uh, we'll uh, see you after the break. Uh, and we'll read some. Uh, I really haven't decided what to read yet, so I'm probably going to end up cutting that. That's fine, yeah. All right, man. Thanks. Bye-bye. A Million Little Pieces by James Fry I wake to the drone of an airplane engine and the feeling of something warm dripping down my chin. I lift my head to fill my face. My front four teeth are gone. I have a hole in my cheek, my nose is broken, and my eyes are swollen nearly shut. I open them and I look around and I'm in the back of a plane and there's no one near me. I look at my clothes and my clothes are covered with a colorful mixture of spit, snot, urine, vomit, and blood. I reach for the call button, and I find it, and I push it, and I wait. 
and thirty seconds later an attendant arrives. How can I help you? Where am I going? You don't know? No. You're going to Chicago, sir. How did I get here? A doctor and two men brought you on. They say anything? They talked to the captain, sir. We were told to let you sleep. How long till we land? About twenty minutes. Thank you. Although I never look up, I know she smiles and feels sorry for me. She shouldn't. A short while later, we touch down. I look around for anything I might have with me, but there's nothing. No ticket, no bags, no clothes, no wallet. I sit and I wait, and I try to figure out what happened. Nothing comes. Once the rest of the passengers are gone, I stand and start to make my way to the door. About five steps, I sit back down. Walking is out of the question. I see my attendant friend and I raise a hand. Are you okay? No. What's wrong? I can't really walk. If you make it to the door, I can get you a chair. How far is the door? Not far. I stand. I wobble. I sit back down. I stare at the floor and take a deep breath. You'll be all right. I look up and she's smiling. Here. She holds out her hand and I take it. I stand and I lean against her and she helps me down the aisle. We get to the door. I'll be right back. I let go of her hand and I sit down on the steel bridge of the jetway that connects the plane to the gate. I'm not going anywhere. She laughs and I watch her walk away and I close my eyes. My head hurts, my mouth hurts, my eyes hurt, my hands hurt. Things without names hurt. I rub my stomach. I can feel it coming, fast and strong and burning. No way to stop it. Just close your eyes and let it ride. It comes, and I recoil from the stench and the pain. There's nothing I can do. Oh, my God. I open my eyes. I'm all right. Let me find a doctor. I'll be fine. Just get me out of here. Can you stand? Yeah, I can stand. I stand and I brush myself off and I wipe my hands on the floor and I sit down in the wheelchair she has brought me. She goes around to the back of the chair and she starts pushing. Is someone here for you? I hope so. You don't know? No. What if no one's there? It's happened before. I'll find my way. We come off the jetway and into the gate. Before I have a chance to look around, my mother and father are standing in front of me. Oh, Jesus. Please, Mom. Oh, my God, what happened? I don't want to talk about it, Mom. Jesus Christ, Jimmy. What the hell happened? She leans over and she tries to hug me. I push her away. Let's just get out of here, Mom. My dad goes around to the back of the chair. I look for the attendant, but she has disappeared bless her. You okay, James? I stare straight ahead. No, Dad, I'm not okay. He starts pushing the chair. Do you have any bags? My mother continues crying. No. People are staring. Do you need anything? I need to get out of here, Dad. Just get me the fuck out of here. They wheel me to their car. I climb in the back seat and I take off my shirt and I lie down. My dad starts driving. My mom keeps crying. I fall asleep.
About four hours later, I wake up. My head is clear, but everything throbs. I sit forward and I look out the window. We've pulled into a filling station somewhere in Wisconsin. There is no snow on the ground, but I can feel the cold. My dad opens the driver's door, and he sits down and he closes the door. I shiver. You're awake. Yeah. How are you feeling? Shitty. Your mom's inside cleaning up and getting supplies. You need anything? A bottle of water and a couple of bottles of wine and a pack of cigarettes. Seriously? Yeah. This is bad, James. I need it. You can't wait? No. This will upset your mother. I don't care. I need it. He opens the door and he goes into the filling station. I lie back down and I stare at the ceiling. I can feel my heart quickening and I hold out my hand and I try to keep it straight. I hope they hurry. Twenty minutes later the bottles are gone. I sit up and I light a smoke and I take a slug of water. Mom turns around. Better? If you want to put it that way. We're going up to the cabin. I figured. We're going to decide what to do when we get there. All right. What do you think? I don't want to think right now. You're going to have to soon. Then I'll wait till soon comes. We head north to the cabin. Along the way, I learn that my parents, who live in Tokyo, have been in the States for the last two weeks on business. At 4 a.m., they received a call from a friend of mine who was with me at a hospital and had tracked them down in a hotel in Michigan. He told them that I had fallen face-first down a fire escape and that he thought they should find me some help. He didn't know what I was on, but he knew there was a lot of it, and he knew it was bad. They had driven to Chicago during the night. So what was it? What was what? What were you taking? I'm not sure. How can you not be sure? I don't remember. What do you remember? Bits and pieces. Like what? I don't remember. We drive on and after a few hard silent minutes we arrive. We get out of the car and we go into the house and I take a shower because I need it. When I get out there are some fresh clothes sitting on my bed. I put them on and I go to my parents' room. They are up drinking coffee and talking, but when I come in, they stop. Hi. Mom starts crying again and she looks away. Dad looks at me. Feeling better? No. You should get some sleep. I'm gonna. Good. I look at my mom. She can't look back. I breathe. I just... I look away. I just, you know, I look away. I can't look at them. I just wanted to say thanks for picking me up. Dad smiles. He takes my mother by the hand, and they stand and they come over to me, and they give me a hug. I don't like it when they touch me, so I pull away. Good night. Good night, James. We love you. I turn and I leave their room, and I close their door and I go to the kitchen. I look through the cabinets and I find an unopened half-gallon bottle of whiskey. The first sip brings my stomach back up, but after that it's all right. I go to my room and I drink, and I smoke some cigarettes, and I think about her. 
I drink and I smoke and I think about her. And at certain, and at a certain point, blackness comes and my memory fails me. Back in the car with a headache and bad breath, we're heading north and west to Minnesota. My father made some calls and got me into a clinic, and I don't have any other options. So I agree to spend some time there, and for now I'm fine with it. It's getting colder. My face has gotten worse, and it is hideously swollen. I have trouble speaking, eating, drinking, smoking. I have yet to look in a mirror. We stop in Minneapolis to see my older brother. He moved there after getting divorced, and he knows how to get to the clinic. He sits with me in the back seat and he holds my hand, and it helps because I'm scared. We pull into the parking lot and park the car, and I finish a bottle, and we get out, and we start walking toward the entrance of the clinic. Me and my brother and my mother and my father, my entire family, going to the clinic. I stop, and they stop with me. I stare at the buildings, low and long and connected, functional, simple menacing. I want to run or die or get fucked up. I want to be blind and dumb and have no heart. I want to crawl in a hole and never come out. I want to wipe my existence straight off the map. Straight off the fucking map. I take a deep breath. Let's go. We enter a small waiting room. A woman sits behind a desk reading a fashion magazine. She looks up. May I help you? My father steps forward and speaks with her as my mother and brother and I find chairs and sit in them. I'm shaking. My hands and my feet and my lips and my chest, shaking, for any number of reasons. My mother and brother move next to me and they take my hands and they hold them and they can feel what is happening to me. We look at the floor and we don't speak. We wait and we hold hands and we breathe and we think. My father finishes with the woman and he turns around and he stands in front of us. He looks happy and the woman is on the phone. He kneels down. They're going to check you in now. All right. You're going to be fine. This is a good place. The best place. That's what I hear. You ready? I guess so. We stand and we move toward a small room where a man sits behind a desk with a computer. He meets us at the door. I'm sorry, but you have to leave him here. My father nods. We'll check him in and you can call later to make sure he's alright. My mother breaks down. He's in the right place. Don't worry. My brother looks away. He's in the right place. I turn and they hug me. One at a time and hold tight. Squeezing and holding, I show them what I can. I turn and without a word I walk into the room and the man shuts the door and they're gone. The man shows me a chair and returns to his desk. He smiles. You're going to stay with us for a while. You okay with that? For now. Do you know anything about this facility? No. Do you want to know anything? I don't care. He smiles, stares at me for a moment. He speaks. We're the oldest resi 
residential drug and alcohol treatment facility in the world. We were founded in 1949 in an old house that sat on the land where, where these buildings, and there are 32 interconnected buildings here, sit now. We have treated over 20,000 patients. We have the highest success rate of any facility in the world. At any given time, there are between 200 and 250 patients. We believe that patients should stay here for as long as a term as they need, not something as specific as a 28-day program. Although it is expensive to come here, many of our patients are here on scholarships that we fund and through subsidies that we support. We have an endowment of several hundred million dollars. We not only treat patients, we are also one of the leading research and educational institutions in the field of addiction studies. You should consider yourself fortunate to be here, and you should be excited to start a new chapter in your life. I stare at the man. I don't speak. He stares back at me, waiting for me to say something. There is an awkward moment. He smiles. You ready to get started? I don't smile. Sure. He gets up, and I get up, and we walk down a hall. He talks, and I don't. The doors are always open here, so if you want to leave, you can. Substance use is not allowed, and if you're caught using or possessing, you will be sent home. You are not allowed to say anything more than hello to any women, aside from doctors, nurses, or staff members. If you violate this rule, you will be sent home. There are other rules, but those are the only ones you need to know right now. We walk through a door into the medical wing. There are small rooms and doctors and nurses and a pharmacy. The cabinets have large steel locks. He shows me to a room. It has a bed and a desk and a chair and a closet and a window. Everything is white. He stands at the door and I sit on the bed. A nurse will be here in a few minutes to talk with you. Fine. You feel okay? No, I feel like shit. It'll get better. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah. The man leaves and he shuts the door and I'm alone. My feet bounce. I touch my face. I run my tongue along my gums. I'm cold and getting colder. I hear someone scream. The door opens and a nurse walks into the room. She wears white, all white, and she is carrying a clipboard. She sits in the chair by the desk. Hi, James. Hi. I need to ask you some questions. All right. I also need to check your blood pressure and your pulse. All right. What type of substances do you normally use? Alcohol. Every day? Yes. What time do you start drinking? When I wake up. She marks it down. And how much per day? As much as I can. How much is that? Enough to make myself look like I do. She looks at me. She marks it down. Do you use anything else? Cocaine. How often? Every day. She marks it down. How much? As much as I can. She marks it down. In what form? Lately crack, but over the years in every form that it exists. She marks it down. Anything else? 
Pills, acid, mushrooms, meth, PCP, and glue. Marks it down. How often? When I have it. How often? A few times a week. Marks it down. She moves forward and draws out a stethoscope. How are you feeling? Terrible. In what way? In every way. She reaches for my shirt. Do you mind? No. Breathe deeply. She listens. Good. Do it again. She lowers my shirt and she pulls away and she marks it down. Thank you. I smile. Are you cold? Yes. She has a blood pressure gauge. Do you feel nauseous? Yes. She straps it on my arm and it hurts. When was the last time you used? She pumps it up. A little while ago. What and how much? I drank a bottle of vodka. How does that compare to your normal daily dosage? It doesn't. She watches the gauge and the dials move and she marks it down and she removes the gauge. I'm going to leave for a little while, but I'll be back. I stare at the wall. We need to monitor you carefully and we'll probably need to give you some detoxification drugs. I see a shadow and I think it moves, but I'm not sure. You're fine right now, but I think you'll start to feel some things. I see another one. I hate it. If you need me, just call. I hate it. She stands up and she smiles and she puts the chair back and she leaves. I take off my shoes and I lie under the blankets and I close my eyes and I fall asleep. I wake and I start to shiver and I curl up and I clench my fist. Sweat runs down my chest, my arms, the backs of my legs. It stings my face. I sit up and I hear someone moan. I see a bug in the corner, but I know it's not there. The walls close in and expand. They close in and expand, and I can hear them. I cover my ears, but it's not enough. I stand. I look around me. I don't know anything. Where am I? Why? What happened? How to escape? My name, my life... I curl up on the floor and I'm crushed by images and sounds. Things I have never seen or heard or ever knew existed. They come from the ceiling, the door, the window, the desk, the chair, the bed, the closet. They're coming from the fucking closet. Dark shadows and bright lights and flashes of blue and yellow and red, as deep as the red of my blood. They move toward me and they scream at me and I don't know what they are. But I know they're helping the bugs. They're screaming at me. I start shaking. Shaking, shaking, shaking. My entire body is shaking. And my heart is racing. And I can see it pounding through my chest. And I'm sweating and it stings. The bugs crawl onto my skin. And they start biting me. And I try to kill them. I claw at my skin. Tear at my hair. Start biting myself. I don't have any teeth and I'm biting myself and there are shadows and bright lights and flashes and screams and bugs, bugs, bugs. I am lost. I am completely fucking lost. 
I scream. I piss on myself. I shit my pants. The nurse returns and she calls for help and men in white come in and they put me on the bed and they hold me there. I try to kill the bugs but I can't move so they live in me, on me. I fill the stethoscope and the gauge and they stick a needle in my arm and they hold me down. I am blinded by blackness. I am gone. I sit in the chair by the window staring. I don't know what I'm staring at and I don't care. It's dark and it's late and I can't sleep anymore. The drugs are wearing off. The nurse comes in. Can't sleep? She checks my pressure and pulse. No. We have a lounge. She hands me some pills. You can watch TV. She hands me a robe and slippers. And you can smoke. I turn and I stare out the window. Get changed and let me show you where it is. All right. She leaves and I take the pills and I change. And when I open the door, she's waiting for me. She smiles and she hands me a pack of smokes. These all right? I smile. Thank you. We go to the lounge. A television, two couches, an easy chair, some vending machines. The television is on. You want a soda? I sit in the chair. No. You're okay. I nod. Thank you. She leaves and I can feel the pills kicking in. I watch television, but nothing registers. I smoke a cigarette. It burns. A man walks in, and he walks up to me, and he stands in front of me. Hey, buddy. His voice is deep and dark. Hey, buddy. Tracks crisscross his forearms. I'm talking to you. Scars run the length of his wrist. I'm talking to you. I look in his eyes. They're blank. What? He points. That's my chair. I turn back to the television. That's my chair. The pills are kicking in. Hey, buddy, that's my chair. Nothing registers. Hey, asshole, that's my fucking chair. I watch TV, and he's breathing heavy, and the nurse comes in. Is there a problem here? This asshole's in my chair. Then why don't you sit on the couch? Because I don't like the couch. I like the chair. James is in the chair. There's the couch or the floor, or you can leave. You decide. Fuck James. Make him move. Do you want me to call security? No. Then you decide. He walks to the couch and he sits down on it. The nurse watches him. Thank you. He laughs and she leaves and we're alone and I'm watching television and smoking a cigarette. He stares at me and he chews his nails and he spits them at me. But the pills are in and the bugs are gone and I don't care. Nothing registers. I watch the television. Everything slows down. Slows down beyond recognition. The image blurs. The voices fade. There's no action and no noise. Just flickering lights and a symphony of withered voices. I stare at the lights. Listen to the voices. I want them to go away and they won't. My eyelids fall. I struggle to bring them up but they won't come. The rest of my body follows my eyes. My muscles go limp and I slide from the chair to the floor. I don't like the floor, and I don't want to be on the floor, but I can't stop myself. As I slide, the surface of the chair holds my robe and scratches the back of my legs, 
and the robe bunches around my waist. I lift my hand to adjust the robe and my hand falls back. My mind tells my hand to move and my mind tells my hand to adjust the robe, but my mind isn't working. My mind isn't working and my hand isn't working. The robe stays. The man stops spitting nails at me and he stands and he walks toward me and I can see him coming through the slitted lids of my eyes. I know that he can do whatever he wants to do to me and I know that I am helpless to stop him. I know that he is angry and I know from his tracks and his scars and his eyes that he will probably express that anger through some form of violence. If I were able to move, I would stand and meet him with a dose of whatever he cared to bring, but I can't meet him with anything. With each step he takes toward me, the situation becomes more clear in my mind. He can do whatever he wants to me. I'm helpless to stop him. Helpless to stop him. Helpless. He stands over me and he stares at me. He leans down and he looks at my face and he laughs. You are one ugly motherfucker. I try to say something back. I can only grunt. I could kick your ass right now if I felt like it. Beat you to a bloody fucking pulp. My body is limp. But all I want is the fucking chair. My mind isn't working. And I'm gonna fucking take it. He reaches out and he grips my wrist and he drags me along the floor. He drags me away from the chair and into the corner of the room, and he leaves me lying face down on the floor. He leans over and he puts his mouth next to my ear. I could have beat your fucking ass. Remember that. He leaves and I can hear him sit down in the chair and start changing the channels on the television. There is a daily sports wrap-up, an infomercial on hair growth, a late-night talk show. He leaves the talk show on, and he laughs when he is supposed to laugh, and he mumbles to himself about how he'd like to fuck one of the guests. I lie face down on the floor. I am awake, but I am unable to move. My heart beats, and it's loud, and I can see it. The bristles of the carpet dig into my face, and I can hear them. The laugh track on the show booms, and I can feel it. I am awake, but I'm unable to move. I fade. I fade, I fade. Morning comes, and when I wake, I am able to move, and I stand, and I look for the man. He's gone. But my memory isn't, and it won't be for a long time. It has always been a fault of mine. I hold my memory. I go to my room, and when I open the door, I see an orderly setting a tray of food on the desk. He looks at me, and he smiles. Good morning. Good morning. I brought you some breakfast. We thought you might be hungry. Thank you. If you want anything else, just call. Thank you. He leaves and I look at the food. Eggs, bacon, toast, potatoes. A glass of water and a glass of orange juice. I don't want to eat, but I know I should. So I go to the chair and I sit down and I look at the food. And then I fill my face. Everything is still swollen. I touch my lips and they crack. I open my mouth and they bleed. I close my mouth and they drip. I don't want to eat, but I know I should. I reach for the glass of water and I take a sip, but it's too cold. I reach for the orange juice and I take a sip, but it burns. 
I try to use the fork, but it does too much damage. I break up the toast and push the pieces down my throat with my fingers. I do the same with the potatoes and the eggs and the bacon. I drink the water, but not the juice. I lick my fingers clean. When I'm done, I go to the bathroom and I vomit. I try to stop it, but I can't. About half of the food comes up, as does some blood and some bile. I am happy that I have kept half of the food. That is more than I normally keep. As I walk back to my bed, a doctor comes into the room. He smiles. Hi. He's wearing a name tag, but I can't read it. I'm Dr. Baker. We shake hands. I'm going to be working with you today. I sit on the edge of the bed. Are you okay with that? He looks at my face, but not my eyes. Yeah. I look at his eyes. How are you feeling? His eyes are kind. I'm tired of that question. He laughs. I'll bet you are. I smile. These, he hands me more pills, are Librium and Diazepam. I take them. They're detoxification drugs and important medically because they stabilize your heart, keep your blood pressure down, and help ease you through withdrawal. Without them, you could suffer a stroke or a heart attack or both. He leans forward and looks at my cheek. You'll be taking them every four hours in decreasing doses for the next five days. I look at his eyes. We're going to take some tests. He's seen this before. And start planning a program for you. All right. First, though, we need to try and fix you up a bit. We go to a room. It has bright fluorescent lights and a large surgical bed and boxes of supplies. I sit on the bed and he puts a pair of latex gloves and he examines my cheek. He picks away the scabs. He opens my mouth. His finger fits through the hole. He gets a needle and some string and tells me to clench my fist and close my eyes. I leave them open and I watch as the needle runs through. Inside and out. My cheek, my lip, my mouth. Forty-one times. We're through, and he's on the phone with a surgical dentist, and I'm sitting on the bed, and I'm shaking from the pain. I can taste heat and the string and the blood. He sets a date, and he hangs up the phone, and he starts washing his hands. We're going to take you into town in a couple of days to get your teeth fixed. I run my tongue along the stitches. I know the dentist, and he'll take good care of you. I run my tongue along the remnants of my teeth. You'll look as good as new. I let my tongue sit where it belongs. Don't worry. He puts on a new pair of gloves and he turns around. Now I need to check your nose. I take a deep breath. He steps forward and he starts looking at my nose. He touches it and I cringe. I can no longer feel my cheek. This is bad. I know. I'm going to have to break it and reset it. I know. The sooner the better, but if you want, we can wait. The sooner the better. All right. He spreads his feet and he firms himself, and he puts both of his hands on my nose. I grab the sides of the bed, and I close my eyes, and I wait. You ready? Yeah. 
He jerks his hands forward and up, and there's an audible crack. Cold white light shoots through my eyes and through my spine and into my feet and back again. My eyes are closed, but I'm crying. Blood is streaming from my nostrils. Now I have to set it. He moves his hands to the side, and I can feel the cartilage move with them. He moves them again. I can feel it. He presses up, and it seems to fit. I can feel it. There. He reaches for some tape, and I open my eyes. He puts the tape across the bridge of my nose, and it holds the cartilage in place. It feels solid. He grabs a towel, and he wipes the blood from my face and my neck, and I stare at the wall. My face is throbbing, and I'm squeezing the sides of the bed, and it hurts my hands. I want to let go, but I can't. You all right? No. I can't give you any painkillers. I figured. The Librium and the Diazepam will take the edge off, but you're gonna hurt. I know. I'll get you a new robe. Thank you. He steps back and he throws the towel in the garbage can and he leaves. I let go of the bed and I hold my hands in front of my face and I stare at them. They shake. I shake. The doctor comes back with the nurse and they help me change and they tell me about the tests they're going to give me. Blood, urine, stool. They need to know how much damage I've done to my insides. The thought revolts me. We leave and we go to a different room that also has a bathroom. I piss in a cup, shit in a plastic container, take a needle in my arm. It's simple and it's easy and it's painless. We emerge and the unit is busy. Patients wait in line for drugs. Doctors go from room to room. Nurses carry bottles and tubes. There's noise, but everything is quiet. I go to my room with the doctor and I sit on the bed. He sits in the chair and he writes on a chart. He finishes writing and he looks at me. Except for the dentist, the worst of it is over. All right. I'm going to put you on 250 milligrams of amoxicillin three times a day and 500 milligrams of penicillin once a day. These will prevent any possible infection. All right. Go to the dispensary and they'll give them to you. Or if you forget, a nurse will come find you. Okay. Thank you for dealing this morning. No problem. Good luck. Thanks. He stands and I stand and we shake hands and he leaves. I go to the dispensary and I stand in line. A young woman stands in front of me. She turns around and she looks at my face. She speaks. Hi. She smiles. Hi. She holds out her hand. I'm Lily. I take it. It's soft and warm. I'm James. I don't want to let it go, but I do. We step forward. What happened? She glances toward the dispensary. I don't remember. She turns back. Blacked out? Yeah. She grimaces. Shit. I laugh. Yeah. We step forward. When'd you get here? I glance toward the dispensary. Yesterday. The nurse is glaring. Me too. I motion toward the nurse, and Lily turns around, and she stops talking, 
and we step forward, and we wait. The nurse glares at us, and she hands Lily some pills and a cup of water, and Lily takes the pills, and she drinks the water. She turns around, and as she passes me, she smiles, and she mouths the word, bye. I smile and step forward. The nurse glares at me and asks me my name. She looks at a chart, and she goes to a cabinet, and she gets some pills, and she hands them to me with a cup of water. I take the pills. I drink the water. I go to my room, and I fall asleep, and I spend the rest of the day sleeping and shoving food down my throat and waiting in line and taking pills. Dun, 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 dun. So, that is the end of another episode of It's in a Book. You are hearing the sounds of my noisy home right now, so my deepest apologies, but this podcast is overdue and we're trying to get it out. Um, for any notes uh, on what we did with this podcast, please see our website, www.oakcityreads.com or www.theoakcityreads.com and of course since our last podcast we have successfully transitioned to iTunes so you can find us there by searching for It's in a Book uh, and you can subscribe to the podcast uh, our RSS feed is, uh, is housed there and, uh, you know, if you listen and like it, uh, give us a rating and, and uh, hopefully that will get the word out and uh, more people will listen and like it. So uh, thank you very much for listening and we will see you in a fortnight. Bye bye. You ready? Steingart. Stein to God. Steingart. Um, I can't say that. Yes, you can. Don't kiss the mic. Steingart. I'm silly, Steingart. It's not silly, Steingart. Steingart. Um, Steingart. All right, you ready? James Fry. James Fry. James Frey. James Frey. Thank you. Thank you.